All right, well, we are in our Psalm Song series still, so sit back and relax. Enjoy today's song. I have a feeling it's going to be really, really fun. Some nights I stay up cashing in my bad luck. Some nights I call it a draw. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they'd just fall off. But I still wake up, I still see your ghost. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for. Oh, what do I stand for? What do I stand for? Most nights I don't know anymore.
How about that? Wasn't that fun? Pun intended. Yes, well, my name is Janice. It is so good to be with you this morning. Our pastor is uh, preaching the fourth or fifth message of the weekend this morning in Goshen, Indiana. He's about six hours away, where um, he has been all weekend preaching a Vineyard Regional Men's Event, tag team preaching with the National uh, Director of the Vineyard. And uh, it's going very, very well. I know one man in particular got saved on Friday night, which is an exciting thing for an outreach. Yes, we're excited about that. And uh, so anyway, and then he's got six hours to drive home as soon as he gets done speaking here in a few moments. So you can be in prayer for him about that. But it is good for me to be here. My name is Janice. I'm one of the staff pastors here. We're in the middle of our song, Psalms series, where we take a popular song and we uh, connect it to a psalm. So got your Bibles? Let's start. Um, we're going to turn in the scriptures to Psalm 77. You can pull up your devices, follow it on the screens. Or um, if you have something with pages, that's fine. I don't. I have a screen. All right, Psalm 77, <clears throat> for the director of music, for Jedithan of Asaph, a psalm. Uh, sometimes you get a little descriptor at the head of your psalm. This just means that this one was not written by David. David wrote most of the psalms. Uh, Moses wrote a few of them. And then this was kind of his head uh, worship leader, if you will, wrote this one. All right? Verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. I, you kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about my former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all of your mighty deeds." Some nights. I think it's so interesting that many of the Psalms, and I even mentioned this to, uh, to Joe recently, we were just chatting about stuff and I've been reading through and I was in the Psalms and I'm like, why are there so many Psalms that talk about all of these reflections these guys are having at night? It's if they can't get any sleep, what is it about the night that makes us question life? Who am I? What do I stand for? Where do I come from? What is this all about? God, have you forgotten me entirely? Is the reason I'm anxious about this because you're mad at me for some reason? Are you rejecting me? Are you never going to come back? You know, what is it about this? We have all of these great questions that sometimes we ask at night. Now, there may be some of you in this room who have no trouble sleeping. You know, maybe you're the best sleeper on the planet, but I would venture to say that usually half of the couples in here, somebody's struggling with the sleep thing, right? You stay awake too long, you toss, you turn, you think of all these things. If that were not true, there would not be so many sleep aids available to us. Am I right? I mean, I, pr I ordered new glasses yesterday, and this 25-year-old whippersnapper was helping me, and, and he's trying to sell me on the blue light ver feature for the glasses. And I'm like, what, what is that about? He's like, well, you know, if you've seen too many screens and stuff, he said, you know, it, all, it helps. I can tell my sleep is better. 
Like you're 25. What if you got to worry about? Do you know what I mean? I mean, what, what, seriously, you're not sleeping at 25? Wait till you're 50, dude. You mean you'll have a lot more things to think about and, and a lot of things to, to regret and worry about when you get to that age. There's something about the night. And I would suggest that is a perfect time for you to analyze the tar out of something. You know, if you need to get up and make pros and con lists and all the rest of it, I would just suggest that we don't make decisions at night. You know what I mean? That is usually not the, let's wait till daybreak and then you make some cognitive decisions when you can see the light of day. But sometimes at night, the enemy plagues us, doesn't he? Sometimes the enemy wants us to believe things that aren't exactly true in the dark of night. And sometimes he plagues us with our regrets. And so I want to say something just really quick. This isn't really the point of the sermon, but, but I think it's a sidebar, all right? So here's your sidebar. I think the enemy wants to give us a couple of things that we get confused. There is something called guilt, there is something called shame, and there is something called regret. And I don't know that you're going to find these definitions in, in you know, Merriam-Webster's. I'm just, this is my, this is, these are my strong feelings about it. I believe that guilt is a gift. Guilt is a gift from God, and it keeps us from being a, a sociopath. <laughs> if you have guilt, you can tell right from wrong. If you ever have guilt in your life, you know you have done something that crossed a line. If you've never felt guilt in your life, you probably need to talk to somebody about that. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you have no remorse. You don't even see a moral line anywhere, even if your line differs from somebody else. The idea that you feel guilty is a gift. It is a gift that God gives us for the sole purpose of bringing us back into fellowship with Him. Right? It is a gift that says, wow, I shouldn't have done that. I need to turn around from that. Shame is something different. Shame is something that the enemy wants to use on you. Shame is when the enemy comes to you and says, remember what you did? I bet everyone else remembers that too. I bet they're never going to forget that. Remember how that went? Think about all the different ways that you hurt people. Do you remember all of that? And even if it's something that you have been forgiven from, shame is set out to make you feel small. Shame is the enemy's attempt to keep you paralyzed from moving forward. Continue to, to, to make you want to keep secrets, right? And that's, that's the shame coat that, that is on you. And then regret, I think, is just that thing that says, wow, I can't forget that I did that, but I'm going to remember I did that so that I don't repeat it. I touched that hot stove once. That wasn't a good experience. I probably shouldn't do that again. That's all right. That's regret, right? It's not shame. It's just that, mm, nope, not going to do that again. So very quickly, I think guilt, the purpose of guilt is to change your heart. The purpose of shame is to make you small. And I think the purpose of regret is just to keep you from repeating something, to keep you from doing that again. But regardless of all those things, in the middle of the night when we're questioning all these things about who we are based on uh, often the things that have gone on in our past, this morning on Father's Day, I want to talk about the power of imitation. The power of imitation, because whether we like it or not, whether you had a father that you're proud of or a father that you wished had been someone different or a father figure, doesn't really matter to me if they were kin to you or whether it was the person who raised you. Our fathers play a large role in who we think we are. 
who it is and how we shape our early understandings of who we are. They just have a lot to do with that. Sometimes we've had fabulous examples uh, of someone who was a great father for us, and sometimes our fathers have become our excuse. They've become our excuse. Well, I didn't have a great dad, so I can't be expected to be a great dad. This is all the better, as good as it's going to get. And I'm telling you this morning, God is inviting us to something more. He's inviting us to something more. You know, when I was at the, uh, when I was teaching at the university, uh, I taught at University of Kentucky and also here at Eastern for a few years, and um, every now and then my students would, usually on the very first day, would say, you're not from around here, are you? And I thought, well, that's not very nice. I'm, I'm pre- you're right, I was not born in Kentucky. And they're like, you don't talk like you're from around here. And I'm like, and then they would say something even, even worse. They say, you're a Yankee. And I would be like, I am not a Yankee. Not because I'm opposed to being a Yankee. I'm just like, I was not born in New England. To me, that's what a Yankee meant. Can we just have a little history lesson real fast? Okay. I might have a burr in my saddle about this. Okay, a Yankee is not someone north of the river, okay? A Yankee makes its first appearance in history in 1754 when a British general wrote in a letter a derogatory comment calling the American colonists Yankees, okay? So in all intents and purposes, Yankee is not Brit, you're not British, okay? So you're a Yankee if you're not British, right? So you may be called a Yank if you go uh, to Great Britain. I've never been there, but whatever, okay? But then, then we act like it's like a civil war determination. No, it's not. Yankee is not people who fought for the North. That's, you know what I mean? It just kind of became this sort of thing, whatever. I'm like, friends, I was born two hours up the road. I grant you it was on the north side of the river, and I'll grant you we didn't know anything about sweet tea. But I'm, saying, I'm telling you that I'm not a Yankee, right? But they're like, your accent gives you away. Our accent gives us away, right? And the accent may not be where you were born, but it will definitely be where you learned to talk. Because one of the first forms of imitation is learning how to form your words, learning how to make your words. And, and we gain those accents. Here's some interesting things about it. Have you ever noticed that when you, maybe you've grown up with an accent from some region of wherever it is you're from, and you've attempted to erase that and, you know, get some kind of broadcaster voice or whatever. But when you go home for Christmas, what happens? It comes back out, right? I mean, it's just right there under the surface because... An accent, often, we will begin to talk like the people we surround ourselves with. We seriously will. We begin to talk like the people we surround ourselves with. Here's the best part. Do you ever notice that when people are singing, they lose their accent? Have you ever found, you know, found a song and you, you thought, wow, that, that person sang the song, and you had no idea until you heard them interviewed that they were like from Australia or from Great Britain. You're like, oh my, I had no idea. It didn't come. Isn't it interesting? And I thought, you know what? When the body of Christ sings together and we worship, we lose our accent because we are unified at the cross. I love that, that we're coming there, right? So where we came from matters not at all, right? That is, but it's an early, early form of imitation. And we will tend to talk like the people who fed us. The people who physically fed us when we were too small to feed ourselves, that is the first kind of imitation that I wanna talk about. That is an imitation that is caught. 
You don't, you know I me, mean? you, you just absorb it. That's just something you do for good or for bad. You will get your accent, you will get your biases, you will get your, your worldview, your values, your understanding of who Jesus is. You will get that from those who raised us. No problem, because at some point, we must outgrow that. At some point, we must outgrow our childish ways. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. The writer of Hebrews alludes to something a little similarly when he's kind of chiding the, the, the Hebrews for not being ready to mature in their faith. And he says this, for although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the very principles of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a baby without experience in applying the word about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature. And for those whose faculties have been trained by continuous exercise to distinguish good from evil. So this morning, whether you have a great dad or a grievous dad, my message to you this morning is we must all outgrow our dads. How's that for a Father's Day message? That'll teach the pastor to ever leave again on Father's Day. You know what I'm saying? All right. Psychologists tell us that our very first understandings of who God is, our very first concepts of who God is, is largely shaped by whoever the man is that raised us, whatever father figure that we had. I decided to test that out one time. When we were in Oklahoma pastoring out there, I had started a college class, and, uh, and I had these students. I knew their families very, very well, and I did not tell them I was doing an experiment on them. And they came into class that day, and I said, I want, us, I want you all to describe God to me. What words would you use first to describe who God is? You know, we're going to talk about the attributes of God. To a T, they described their dads. Without a doubt, those who I knew had a very kind father, a very easygoing dad, they, they first thing they noticed and, and wanted to mention about God was how loving he was and how kind he was. For those that had kind of a strict and stern father, they kind of mentioned the righteousness of God and, well, he kind of is, you know, he wants to make sure you do that. You know, they described that it's a very accurate sort of thing. In terms, I should say it was an accurate assumption that that's how we get that, but that isn't an accurate view of who God is. We can't simply use our dads to tell us who God is. Let me do a little comparison here for you. Um, I grew up with a father who was a very godly man. Um, he died at 54, so I'm already older than he was when he passed away. And, and I've told many people, if I, if I have half the impact on the world that he had, by the time I die, I will be happy. And he wasn't a preacher. He was just a farmer. He wasn't educated. He didn't go to college. He was smart, but he wasn't educated at all. He just lived for Jesus in a way and expressed it to other people in a way that there are so many more people in heaven because of him. And he was such a great man, and I loved him dearly. And so I kind of, he was my, you know, he's a little bit of the picture of God that I have. I never want to disappoint my dad, so I never want to disappoint God. Joe had a very different dad. I had a great dad. He had a dad that created a lot of grief in their home, right? He wasn't a believer when they were uh, being raised all the time that Joe was being raised, and a lot of things went on that created a lot of trauma and, and pain. And, and, and still, Joe grew up thinking, 
wow, if that's how God is, I, I, don't, I don't know about that, right? I mean, he also learned that thing. But no matter what kind of dad that is, we both had to determine who we wanted to be. See, neither one of those was an excuse for us. Let me put it this way. Your dad's bad behavior is no excuse for you not to follow Jesus. Your dad's bad behavior, if you had a dad with bad behavior, is no excuse for you not to follow Jesus. You can't say, well, I didn't have a good example, and so whatever. No, sometimes a bad example will give you even more clarity (laughs) about what you want to be and what you don't want to be. Someday we're going to come face-to-face with Jesus And if we walk in and he's going, what about this? And you're like, well, you know what? I'd have been a better Christian if you would have given me a better dad. You know, I just didn't have a very good dad. And so I, you know, I just couldn't do any better. That is such a lame excuse. That would be like going and saying, the dog ate my homework. It's about that silly, right? No, at some point that is a lame excuse, right? There is no excuse to not follow Jesus just because your dad had bad behavior. Let me say it another way. Your dad's good behavior is no excuse for you to follow Jesus. Your dad's good behavior is no excuse for you to follow Jesus. In other words, I'm not like halfway closer to Jesus because I had a great dad. You understand what I'm saying? I still, I can't get into heaven on my dad's coattails. I can't like coast because I had a dad who gave me great examples. At some point, I have to own it. At some point, I have to decide what I'm going to do with who I am and who God has asked me to be. Both kinds of dads are examples, but neither one of them is an excuse. Neither one of them can be an excuse. I have to decide what I will be known for and who I'm going to follow. Romans 1.20, Paul says this to the Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There's no excuse. So we we can't use that to fall back on. We have to outgrow whatever that is. I've often said this too. I think sometimes that people like my husband who did not have a great dad example can actually get a clearer view of who God is than someone like me who had a great dad. Because his example is so far removed. Joe had to go straight to Scripture. That's where he had to get his view of God. He had to go straight to Scripture and go, well, that's who God really is. That is apparently it's not this. It is this. Whereas my understanding of God is kind of muddled with the human aspects of what my dad did and lived like. So, so don't feel badly if you didn't have the best father example in the whole world. Because the second type of imitation is taught. It's selected. If the first kind of imitation is something you catch because you didn't have any choice and it's the people who taught you how to talk, the second kind of imitation is something you must choose. You must select who you're going to imitate because now you are grown. Now you are an adult. You are a man. It says when we become a man, no gender intended, we put childish ways behind us because a real man takes responsibility for what he does, for what he will be known for for who he believes in. And he's not just talking the accent that he learned in church. He's not just talking in the dialect of churchdom because he grew up in it. He's chosen. No, a real man says, I choose this day to follow Jesus. I choose. Like it says in Joshua 24, 1, but for, as for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. So to illustrate this second kind of imitation and what I think it takes for us, I want to talk about two prophets from the Old Testament, two uh, major prophets. Uh, I don't know if Elisha's considered major. Elijah is. Two guys whose names are very similar but not the same dude. Elijah and Elisha. Okay, Elisha will, um, will succeed, will take over and transfer a power from Elijah when Elijah um, is gone. Let me set the stage a little bit. Elijah has been doing a great work for God. He's had a whole lot of things that he's accomplished in and, and God has used him in a mighty way. He is the spiritual uh, intercessor for the, the entire nation of Israel and they haven't been doing very good at that, by the way. And, um, and he is at the end of his life, he thinks. He's aging, and he is ready to be done with this. So it's time for him to tag the new prophet, right, to go and, and um, make this transfer of leadership for his replacement. Now, I think there are a lot of things to learn from these, these couple verses I'm going to share with you about a transfer of power. Notice that there is no election for who's going to be the next prophet. Notice that there is no campaign for Elisha. There is no prophet platform for who's going to run for prophet. None of that is happening, right? More interesting to me, and this is maybe in the weeds a little bit, at the time that Elisha is picking, Elijah is picking his successor, there are supposedly a hundred prophets that have been hidden in caves in what I would call a little cave seminary. Okay, because it is a time of Baal worship. And so there's a hundred guys that have been over there studying and they've been fed by Obadiah. And apparently Elisha's not one of them. Elisha is a farmer. This is what it looks like. First Kings 19, 19 through 21. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. We don't even know that they knew one another at this point. Obviously, Elijah is very easy to pick out. He was known. He was kind of a scary dude when he showed up. He was pl- and so Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak or his mantle around him. Now, listen, this is not because Elisha was cold, right? The, the cloak was a symbol of his position as a prophet. And when he puts that on Elisha, Elisha doesn't miss the notion. That means it's an invitation, dude, you're next. Okay? He understands that. Okay? So he threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. And what we're going to see next is this time where these two guys walk side by side, and this is a time of imitation. This is a time of apprenticeship. This is a time of discipleship. And to be honest, that's really what I'm talking about today, right? I'm talking about discipleship from the view of the disciple, how you imitate the person that you want to be like, the person that you are learning from. And this is not the childish sort of imitation because it's in front of you and you're like a parrot. This is imitation that you're selecting and doing on your own. And here's what I want you to take from this. Number one, imitation is a choice. Imitation is a choice. It is voluntary. Elijah shows up and he throws that robe on him and he's like, okay, let me go take care of some stuff. And Elijah's like, dude, I didn't, I didn't say anything to you. And what I hear Elijah saying is, I'm not forcing you to do anything. 
you do you. You want to come? I'm going that way. Want to come with me? Very much like Jesus calling the disciples away from their fishing enterprise. Come and follow me. You want to come? Come. Notice what there isn't here. There is no coercion. Elijah does not coerce Elisha. He doesn't tell him what the package is. He doesn't tell him what the dental plan is going to be. He doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't say, God, you'll really wish you did this and beg him to come along. See, I think the church has messed us up so badly sometimes when we get into evangelism because we're up here begging, you know, doing four stanzas of just as I am. Please come, please come, please come. There is no crying in baseball and there is no begging with Jesus. Jesus doesn't beg. He doesn't beg. He just says, come. It is an invitation, and it is so alluring, and yet it is so costly to follow him. But he's never going to beg you to do that. There is no groveling. There is no begging. And let me just spread this a little further. What relationship do you have where groveling and begging is healthy? If you're in a marriage where one of you has to grovel and beg, (laughs) something's not right, something's not healthy. If you're trying to date someone that you have to beg to date you, that's not healthy. You're going to have trouble later. If you are a parent and you have to beg your child to do something, something's not terribly healthy. On the other hand, if you have a child that begs you for everything in the world, that's expected. They're, They're childish right? I mean, it's a childish behavior. They'll outgrow that. They'll get past it. Now, if they're still 50 years old and they're begging their parents for stuff, you still got problems, right? I mean, begging is not, it's not a part of a good relationship. A good relationship means I'm, I'm coming. It's a voluntary sort of thing. Number two, imitation means leaving stuff. Imitation means leaving stuff. If I want to get rid of my accent, to learn something new. I can't hang on to it and practice my new accent at the same time. I have to leave this behind to learn something new, to grab on to something new. I cannot just add Jesus onto my already busy, chuck full life and call myself a disciple. You know, we're so used to these subscription things that everybody gets these days, but it occurs to me that the real leveler, the real equalizer in our lives is time. It's time. You know, cable wants you to have 14 bazillion channels. But here's what I've learned, and I don't know if you figured this out, but the time you spend on Netflix is time that you didn't spend on HBO Max. The time that you spent on Amazon Prime is time that you did not spend on Hulu because you only have so much time. You cannot do everything, and you cannot just add Jesus onto your life like another subscription and think you're going to have time for him, and because you're signed up for it, you're all good. See what I mean? That's, that's really not it. You're going to have to leave some stuff behind. Number three, imitation means picking a team. Picking a team. The first point was about the fact that that imitation is voluntary. I have to choose to follow Elijah. But I'll tell you this. Elisha could not follow Elijah and some other ding-dong prophet at the same time. And there were other prophets that he could have followed. There were lots of prophets of Baal that were out there. There were lots of other places he could go. But you cannot walk over here and over here at the same time. You have to pick a team. Even in Jesus' day, Jesus and John the Baptist, there's this fun little scripture, and nobody likes to talk about it too much, but John the Baptist's disciples in John chapter 3 are feeling a little uh, competitive. 
with Jesus' disciples. And they're like, John, those disciples over there with Jesus, they're baptizing too. They shouldn't be doing that. And everybody's going to them. And John's like, listen, we're all doing the same thing. We're all working for the same goal. Leave him alone. They're, you know, he's, he's going to be greater than me. I'm lesser, whatever. And it's like, okay, we have to choose who. When we were little, we were, we were influenced by who fed us. Now we're going to be influenced by who led us. But you get to choose that. You get to choose who's going to pour into your life. Whether it's a church, whether it is a mentor. And when I say mentor, I mean somebody who is further down the road you want to go. It's about direction. We're not talking about becoming a cookie-cutter example of something else. Elisha never became exactly like Elijah. They had some real strict difference, strong differences. Elijah was a hairy dude, and Elisha was grumpy, and I think he was grumpy because he was bald. I'm just saying, we know this. We know that he was bald because some little boys came out one time and made fun of him and said, oh, baldy, and called him names. And Elisha was a little grumpy, and he called down curses on them, and bears came out of the woods, and there are children in the room. I won't go any further, but you can go find that in Scripture. I'm just saying he was a grumpy prophet. But he didn't have to be exactly like, but he, but he learned from him, okay? And he chose who he was going to follow and who he was going to learn from. And there will be different seasons in your life, friends, where you're going to learn from different people, where you're going to have different folks who disciple you. That's okay, but you cannot be discipled by the whole world. Can I just say that about the whole online thing that we're doing right now? You know, you know eat widely from wherever, but, it, but, but we have to choose where we're going to serve, where our church community is going to be, and where my gifts are going to contribute instead of just being a consumer who just samples broadly. Number four, imitation means watching and learning. Imitation means watching and learning, watching the fruit that lies at the feet of whoever it is you want to learn from. You know, we're, we're living in a world now where everybody wants to say, don't judge me. You can't judge me. You don't have any right to tell me that. You can't tell me I can't do that. Don't judge me. No, no, we're called to judge each other. It's called discernment. You have to do that. How in the world can you tell what fruit is on a tree unless you look at it and see that it is an orange and not a lemon? Now I can see what that is. Now I know what kind of a tree it is. If you're going to follow someone, look at the fruit that lies at their feet. Do you want that kind of fruit to lie at your feet? We need to, make, we need to look at those things and evaluate that. Elisha learned some skills from, the, from Elijah who had gone on before him. I think one of the struggles we have, though, in our world is that we are in a society that worships youth so much. And maybe we've said that for generations. I don't know. You know, everybody wants to be young forever. But there are some societies who do a little bit better job about honoring the aged. And I'm not talking about just, you know, being nice to old folks. I'm saying that old people have seen some stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? They have seen some stuff. They may not know the difference between an iPhone and an Android, but they have seen some stuff. They maybe don't know the difference between the remote for the Roku and the remote for the soundbar. You can help them out on that, but they've seen some stuff. And they know some stuff that you won't have to learn if you take the time to listen to them. If you take the time to learn from them and to rest on the shoulders of their wisdom, you don't have to relearn every single thing that there is out there to learn. Hebrews 13, 7 says this, Remember your leaders 
who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of the way, their way of life and imitate their faith. Whose lives are you watching that you need to imitate their faith? You've watched the outcome. You like what their marriage looks like. How do I do that? You like how their kids are turning out. How do I do that? You like how they've managed their money. How do they do that? You like the way they serve the church. You like the way they have followed Jesus. How do you do that? Imitate that. Paul says it in this way in Philippians 3.17, and this, is, this seems kind of arrogant. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I used to think, wow, that's cocky. How can you say that? I would have a hard time saying, live like me, do what I'm doing. You know who can say that? Somebody who is certain that they're following God. He's so sure, that not that he's doing everything perfectly, but he knows the direction his feet are pointed, and he's not afraid to say, come follow me, because I know where I'm going, and you can follow me, because I know where I'm going to end up, and if you're walking in my footsteps, you're going to end up there too. So he's not afraid to tell somebody that. Because I'll tell you this, learning involves patterns. Learning involves patterns, and the longer we live, the more patterns that we notice. You know, when I was studying history, one of our professors had said this, and it never left me. He said, what we do is we read, and we're looking for a pattern. We're looking for a reason why this, this, this creates this. That's what we're looking for. It really, a pattern is nothing more than a recipe, or a recipe is nothing more than a pattern. If you put this, this, this in order in this time frame, bread turns out. You know, you, you get this. You don't have to figure out a recipe for bread. You can actually follow the wisdom of somebody who's done it a long time, and this is what happens. Let me say it this way, and I'm not trying to polarize anybody. The same thing could be said of vaccines, right? A vaccine is a pattern. It is a recipe. My doctor, my brother is a doctor. He got hit with COVID really hard. We almost lost him, and, and uh, I was talking to him about the whole vaccine thing, and I said, you know, how do you feel about this? It kind of bothers me that, you know, all these companies magically came up with the same, you know, like, oh, we all got one the same week. You know, it just felt really contrived to me, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know, and he said, listen. He said, we already know a lot about vaccines. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. He said, there's so much ground that has been worked. Now we're trying to create it for a certain thing. He said, we're standing, it was not like we're cavemen trying to figure stuff out. We have, we're standing on the shoulders of people who have studied things ahead of us. Whose shoulders are you standing on? I'm not trying to tell you that vaccines, good, bad, or indifferent. I could care less if you think it was rushed or, or took it, or I don't really care. I'm saying there's patterns in life. There are patterns to the lives of people who have gone before you. Whose pattern are you following? On this Father's Day, when we remember the people who raised us for good or for ill, the examples we were given, it's time for us to choose today for ourselves who we're going to serve. That's what we need to remember. As a child, we are formed by those who fed us. As an adult, we will be formed by those who led us. That's the choice we get to make. And I remember asking God as I was, as I was preparing this, actually, I just heard him tell me this morning as I was sitting down there, I'm like, God, what is, what's the overall point here? What is the message that you're trying to get across? And, and he said, you know, are we coasting? Are we coasting on a great example that we had in our life? And so we're already feeling like halfway to heaven because we had a great upbringing. And God's saying, no, is it yours? 
It needs to be your decision. And then there's some of us that are coasting because we just didn't have a good enough example. And so we kind of give ourselves a, a get out of jail free card. And we're like, well, I can't be expected to do that much or be because I didn't really have a great example. If I had a better example, I could be a better person. And that's coasting. You don't have to have any of that. We have Jesus. We're grown-ups now. We have Jesus, and we can choose people who are doing things well to follow their example. We can do that. So, in the spirit of imitation, we're getting ready to go into our prayer time. And as you can see, we have children joining us for prayer this morning. See, we want them to have the accent of prayer that we have. So, a couple of weeks ago, I went over to the elementary side, and, and we taught the children, and we gave them the training that we give our adults in readiness for this day so that they could come over and they could pray for you this morning. We did this a, a couple years ago, and it was a really powerful time. Because I'll tell you what, if you've never had a child pray for you, get ready. Because they will say stuff that comes straight from the Spirit. And they know how to do it. They'll ask you what you would like to pray about. And if you don't have anything, they'll just pray over a blessing over you anyway. And they might read your mail. And this is going to be your opportunity so come to your feet. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And then during this final song, you can come forward. And you can just kneel down in front of them or whatever and uh, invite someone to pray for you this morning. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these children. Thank you for this community of believers. God, some of us have fathers that um, we're proud of. Some of us have fathers that just bring up all kinds of emotion that we really don't want to feel today. So God, I pray that you would move us past both of those examples, that we would use neither of them as excuses, but we would move forward in the direction that you want us to go. God, put someone on our heart and our mind that you want us to reach out to, to grow closer to, to begin to imitate, not to become like them, but ultimately that we can become more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen.